Hello, and welcome to the podcast version of I Might Be Wrong, as always, kicking it off with only the hottest and most culturally relevant copyright-expired music. That is My Best Girl by Walter Donaldson. Let me tell you something about these copyright-expired songs that I find for the podcast. I sometimes have trouble finding one that's not racist. I know we all know that stuff from the 1920s is pretty racist. We all have grandparents, but it's everywhere. And I remember the first time I encountered this brief story, I wrote a TV pilot that was a parody of Shirley Temple movies. And let me tell you, if you could measure indifference, if there was like a Geiger counter for how much Hollywood did not give a fuck about a script, this script would have broken that machine. It would have burst into flames the second it made contact with this script. That is just how comprehensively Hollywood did not care about my Shirley Temple TV show script. And fair enough, who's that for? Titanic survivors? I don't know. I wrote it because I thought it was funny. But anyway, when I was researching it, I watched a lot of old movies in vaudeville, and one thing I learned is that ethnic humor, it was not part of the mix back then. It was the cornerstone of what they were doing back then. It was constantly like, and now a trip to the sands of Arabia, and, you know, camels, snake charmer, real bad stuff. And watching that stuff informed an essay that I wrote. This is this is on the Substack. You can find it. It's from August. It's called The You Can Only Write Characters Who Are Exactly You Idea Is Not Workable. Again, that's from August. You can look it up. The point I was making in that essay is that this modern idea that, you know, if you're a man, you can your main character should also be a man and like you can only write a gay character if you're gay. I think that's ridiculous. But one thing I was sure to work into the essay was that If you are writing outside your own experience, I do think you have to do a lot of research so that you don't have the shallow, non-researched version, basically the tossed-off version of whatever it is you're writing about, and that was very much informed by those old 20s and 30s movies where they're constantly going, and now to the Orient, cut to Dragon Rickshaw, real, real bad. So, I just thought you might be interested to know that as I find these copyright-expired songs, I am having to tiptoe around ones. I'll see ones that are called, like, (laughs) Indian Call. And I'll be like, nope, not doing Indian Call. Gonna do My Best Girl by Walter Donaldson. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the audio version of I Might Be Wrong. I Might Be Wrong is my substack where you will find the essay that I'm going to read today, as well as many, many other essays. So if you like this crap, please check out the substack for much other crap. Probably shouldn't have phrased it that way, but there's no going back now. Today's column is called, What if diversity, equity, and inclusion is making us more biased? I wanted to write this because I worry that common ways of thinking these days and some of the policies that come from those ways of thinking are driving us apart. When we're encouraged to think of ourselves in terms of our race, in terms of our gender, I worry that We're reinforcing these superficial differences, and I don't think it's doing good things to our brains. But we're really reluctant to talk about these uncomfortable thoughts that are going on in our brains because they're uncomfortable. So I wanted to do an essay where we talk about them a little bit. So the title is, What If Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is Making Us More Biased? Subheading, We Were Already Pretty Biased to Begin With. So let's start by recognizing 
how ridiculously biased all of us are. It's our stupid brain's fault. We all make inferences and assumptions based on what we think we know. If I am being honest, when I see a big, muscly, like, weightlifter dude, I don't think heart surgeon. When I play pickup soccer, this is true, I listen for who's not speaking English, and then I try to get on that team. Now, that's not good, that's not fair, but our brains are wired to tie thing A to thing B. This association happened when I was a kid. I would watch The Wonder Years, and I really hated Kevin Arnold. And I didn't know why until I realized that Kevin Arnold's adult voice is one of the burglars from Home Alone. Which is true. It's the one who's not Joe Pesci. As an adult, uh, Kevin Arnold did try to murder Macaulay Culkin. I really do think the Wonder Years and Home Alone existed in the same universe. When I see that burglar, I think that's Kevin Arnold. He's got the frizzy hair. It's Kevin Arnold grown up. Anyway, one point on which Ibram X. Kendi and I agree is that bias is all around us. None of us are completely aware of our biases, and we can't be completely aware even if we try. Of course, I think Kendi's view of how bias works is simplistic, and I have major problems with his method for measuring bias, but we agree that it's there. A low, or sometimes not low, static that distorts everything. You can't eliminate it. You can only work to recognize it within yourself and try to course correct. Over the years, I have come to think that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, or affirmative action, if you want to use the slightly passe phrase, I think they're a disastrous policy. I am not against them in every case. I think there are a limited set of circumstances in which lightly applied policies make sense, but I do think most of the time they're divisive and unfair. I also know they are extremely unpopular. They poll worse than defund the police, which does not poll well. And they get hammered at the ballot box, even in diverse deep blue states like California. I also think that important parts of the democratic agenda, things like social spending and election reform, are being sacrificed to policies that a majority of Americans of all races don't want. And if you go to the column, don't want links to a survey in which 74% of Americans oppose factoring race into hiring decisions, and that includes majorities of every race and ethnicity. So I'm generally not a fan of these policies, and I also worry that they might be making us more biased. They are adding a new source of bias that we probably all recognize, even if we're too polite to talk about it. And at the same time, most DEI initiatives displace policies that would reduce bias. It is, I think, a disaster. I think we are responding to a thing with actions that intensify that thing, much like how conservative parents in the 90s would try to cure, gigantic scare quotes around that, cure their gay teenager by sending them to a camp full of other gay teenagers. That is the opposite of what's going to work. This week in the New York Times, the author Jessica Nordle had an article about bias, specifically sexism. To make a long article short, she thinks that sexism is bad, and she thinks its effects compound themselves over time. And I completely agree. Of course, there's a link to the article in the column. Nordell talks about bias in the traditional framework, i.e. men being sexist against women and white people being racist against non-white people. It is, of course, 
easy for me to picture those environments. I've been in them many times before. But as Nordell presents evidence for bias in different contexts, in academia, in medicine, it's impossible for me to not draw on my own experiences to identify one probable cause of some of that bias. And that is programs that give some people a leg up over others. So, we're in an uncomfortable area, but let's start with a fun example. I went to college with Ivanka Trump. This is true. We were at Georgetown at the same time. She was actually in my biblical literature class. Now, Ivanka and I didn't hang out much. You see, the thing is, in college, I was very cool. Now, maybe my Model UN friends and I were being cliquish, but uh, we did not ever invite Ivanka to watch BattleBots with us or join one of our all-night Settlers of Catan tournaments. Honestly, I'm not sure Ivanka was really ready to run with us. We were kind of the fast crowd, so yeah, Ivanka and I did not become good friends. But she was there. And what was my perception of her? Honestly, my perception was that she was not very bright. Hard to believe. I know. Now, I don't think I felt that way because of person-to-person interactions between Ivanka and myself, of which there were approximately negative zero. But I think I felt that way because I figured she got into Georgetown because her dad is rich. Most people at Georgetown, especially the non-athletes, and non-athletes is a great description of my social circle, most people had to get good grades and test scores. But, of course, if your parents are rich and powerful, you can waltz into a top university, even if you're a five-star dullard. And if Ivanka isn't history's best example of that reality, then her husband definitely is. And in the column, I have a picture of Jared with his waxy face and uh, the look in his eyes. He's such a lost little boy. Poor kid. You can tell he just wants to go home and play Yoshi's Crafted World. Why do they make him wear a suit and attend the G8? He doesn't want to do that. But anyway, was my snap assessment of Ivanka fair? On the one hand, no. Maybe she could have gotten into Georgetown without special favors. And remember, I was judging her back before she wished happy birthday to an eight-month-old, so it was easier back then to give her the benefit of the doubt. But... I would also argue that I would have had to have been incredibly dense not to at least consider the possibility that she was subjected to a lower admission standard. Admission benefits for the rich and powerful are a real thing. And that's true even if your dad is not yet as powerful as he will be and is maybe lying about being rich. Okay, now let's get me into big trouble. After college, when I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, I had similar misgivings about veterans. And with that, I am going to ask you to please subscribe, please, because obviously I am never going to be hired by any respectable organization ever again. And yet, how could I not be somewhat skeptical of veterans? Hiring for federal jobs is done according to a point system, and you get a ton of points for being ex-military. A ton. If you were convicted of triple homicide and you also served in the military, those two things are going to basically cancel each other out. You're still going to have a leg up over someone who did neither of those two things. Now, let me also say, I worked with many veterans at EPA who were fantastic people who were excellent at their jobs. That is true. 
Also true, I worked with a few veterans who were freak show level morons, and I did not consider them qualified to scare away birds at the airport. It is not fair to lump the first group in with the second group, but honestly, the second group does kind of loom large in the psyche. So, now that I'm lying in a 50-foot deep grave that I have dug for myself, why don't we start shoveling in some dirt? I have also, sometimes, wondered if some of the women and people of color I've met in comedy were hired entirely on merit. It is the exact same situation as with Ivanka and the veterans. There is a major push to hire more women and people of color in comedy, which often entails a different set of standards. That is especially true in late-night television. There is even a tax credit in New York now for hiring women of people in color. The tax credit signed by that famous champion of women's rights, Andrew Cuomo. Anyway, am I an asshole for wondering if some of my colleagues and co-eds were held to a lower standard? You are free to think that I am. But I would argue that I was put in situations in which I could not help but have those thoughts. I do aspire to not be an asshole. It's not looking good, but I'm going to keep trying. So when I'm in one of these situations, I think it's not fair to prejudge anybody. I need to put aside what I know about the hiring process and do my best to view this person through unbiased eyes. I do think that. And I'll sometimes tack on this truism, which is most hiring processes are pointless garbage implemented by idiots anyway. So all of us are here by virtue of a system so random that they probably would have done at least as well letting Paul the Psychic Octopus pick new hires, even though Paul the Psychic Octopus has been dead for 10 years. Still a better system than most systems for hiring. And I know I'm not the only person who has these feelings, and I know that not just because I know it, but also because a recent study by two University of Pennsylvania professors found race and gender bias in some situations, especially STEM jobs. Many studies have found similar results, but the hypothesized explanations for some of these findings were interesting. From the report, and I'm quoting now, female and minority candidates receive less credit for prestigious internships in all fields. It was quite a big effect, Lowe said. Lowe is one of the authors of the study, so this is her speaking. Uh, Women and minorities only get about half the boost that a white man would have. One possible mechanism for this effect is that employers believe that other employers exhibit positive preferences for diversity. And so, having a prestigious internship is a less strong signal of quality if one is from an underrepresented group. That's the first quote. Second quote. Employers generally rated female and minority candidates lower in, quote, getability meaning they believed those candidates were less likely to accept a job offer. That's the write-up of the study, and now this is Lowe speaking directly. Perhaps due to the prevalence of diversity initiatives, employers expect that desirable minority and female candidates will receive many offers for competing firms and thus will be less likely to accept any given offer. Now this is me speaking again, and before I go on, I want to address something that came up in the comments section. Some people in the comments were wondering why the authors of this study were theorizing about things like why an employer might discount the quality of an internship when the internship went to a woman or a DEI candidate. Seems like the obvious explanation would be they're biased against the woman or they're biased against the DEI candidate. 
It's a logical set of assumptions, except that the study found bias only in a couple areas. It was really only in STEM, and they did not find bias in other areas. So when Lowe is speaking there, when she's saying employers don't seem to value an internship when it went to a DEI candidate, I believe she's saying that because she is talking about employers who had not demonstrated bias in other parts of the process. That would be a reason why there's this phenomenon here that she is attempting to explain. Back to the column. So the upshot here is that diversity initiatives might be causing their supposed beneficiaries to be seen as less gettable and lower in quality. This is, on some level, something I suspect we all know that is putting that thought in our brains. Let me draw again from personal experience. In my experience, nobody hates DEI initiatives more than people who fall into a DEI category but would have met the standard even if they hadn't. I have heard many complaints from such people, including my wife, who used to be in academia. Nobody wants to be a token, and nobody wants to feel disrespected. And obviously, the fault lies with anyone who is doing the disrespecting. We all need to try to avoid prejudgment. But on a base level, those feelings are inevitable because they're rational. There is not a universe in which I could have met Ivanka Trump and not thought, you are probably just here because of your dad. So, how do we avoid this situation that basically sucks for everybody? The answer is obvious. Make evaluation systems as objective as possible. And to her credit, Nordle, that's the New York Times author, advocates for that in her article. This is Nordle speaking. She's going to sound a lot like Lowe. Nordle says, What works? Having managers directly mentor and sponsor women improves their chance to rise. Insisting on fair, transparent, and objective criteria for promotions and assignments is essential so that decisions are not ambiguous and subjective, and goalposts aren't shifting and unwritten. End quote. I couldn't agree more, except that I'm not sure if goalposts can be unwritten, but otherwise, I couldn't agree more. None of us can be trusted with our bias. With the proviso that any measurement is only as good as its precision, subjectivity needs to be taken out of the process as much as possible. Job applications should be anonymized. I am really not advocating so much as pleading, please, please end the reign of terror by our racist, sexist brains. Take them out of the process as much as possible, please. But, tragically, the trend in left-leaning circles is in the opposite direction. Harvard is about to go to the Supreme Court to defend subjectivity in admissions. California has scrapped the SAT, defying the recommendation of a panel that found that the SAT is a better predictor of college success than high school grades. Standardized tests throughout New York City public schools are facing similar opposition. Blind auditions were implemented to reduce bias in orchestras, but now some people want to end them. Similarly, blind submissions were once fashionable in comedy, but have fallen out of favor. The word objectivity itself is viewed by some as racist coding. Why? Why are we going backwards? <laughs> We know why. It's this poisonous, totalizing ideology that deems any inequity in outcomes between groups unacceptable. It's this 
dumb, illiberal bullshit that views all of us according to our ascriptive traits and then assigns those traits maximum salience. It is why we all keep being forced into maddening and undignified situations in which race and gender are shoved to the front of our consciousness in deeply unhealthy ways. I think we should be moving away from that type of thinking. I think we should be searching for ways for the traits we're born with to matter less. That's how you reduce discrimination based on race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and though I haven't mentioned this one, uh, physical attractiveness, because that's actually the big one, isn't it? We should favor objective processes so that the very good-looking stop having advantages. I really feel strongly that it does not have to be this way. Diversity, equity, and inclusion could mean removing barriers to access, and sometimes it does mean that. Those barriers to access, those are real, especially economic barriers, which often get zero weight in DEI programs. DEI could start with proactive efforts to make sure people from outside the usual pipelines are able to apply. This is very relevant to comedy, by the way. Make sure people outside the pipelines can apply, and it would do away with things that favor the rich, like networking, needless credentialism, and internships. That still leaves room for objective processes designed to find the person best able to do the job. And I think this goes without saying, but advantages for the Trumps and the Kushners in college admissions, those have got to go too. Give Ivanka's spot to someone who deserves it more. Perhaps Paul the Psychic Octopus, even though, as I mentioned, he's quite dead. It's worth noting that none of what I've said is by itself an argument against most DEI programs. It is part of the argument. It is something to keep in mind. I think most of us know about the unfair but also unavoidable prejudgment that's caused by heavy-handed DEI policies, but we don't want to talk about it because it's so fucking uncomfortable. I think that causes us to downplay its importance, even though its effects, I think, are damaging and large. I think Nordle, that's the New York Times lady again, is right. That if a person is seen as less capable because of their group, that's going to follow them throughout their career. The thing is, blunt DEI programs make it likely that a person from a group that benefits from DEI will be seen that way. We can say that perception isn't fair, and in many cases it won't be. But if the person was in fact hired according to a lower standard, then an a priori assumption that they're less capable is rational. There's no getting around that. We can push back against racism and sexism by prioritizing objectivity. And we should do that because our brains will jump at any chance we give them to make biased assumptions. And that's the column. Oh, I hope this one is received well. This one is so prone to misreading. I hope it's clear that I don't want our brains to think this way. I feel like we keep getting forced into situations where our brains operate in really unhealthy ways. But I thought it was important to talk about, so I wrote it. Also, I wanted to point out that Kevin Arnold, when he grew up, did try to commit murder. Talk about subjects we're too afraid to talk about. Anyway, thanks for listening. As I mentioned, this 
column and many other columns are on my Substack. It's called I Might Be Wrong. You can find it at imightbewrong.substack.com. Please check it out and subscribe, and I will be back next week with another column. Bye for now. Bye for now.